Happy New Year. Y'all feeling good about 2019? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Fred. <laughs> um, I don't know what your plans are for the new year. You're going to lose weight. You're going to start exercising. But uh, obviously, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I always want to encourage people to make some, some plans for growing uh, themselves and the Lord. And, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the drums that I beat over the years, if you've been here uh, any length of time, you hear me talk about this again and again and again, uh, that getting the word of God in our lives and spending time daily with the Lord in, in prayer is just so foundational. Uh, everything else really flows out of that. And yet we live busy lives. We have ourselves uber scheduled and so forth. And so what's a person to do? Well, we live in, uh, in the digital age, and so one way that we can capitalize on that is getting some apps that help us. And so one of the apps that I use for Bible memory is called Remember Me. Uh, I love it because it's uh, very user-friendly, and that's kind of like my top qualification for any app. It has to be user-friendly. I'm not very bright. And you can put uh, verses in there of your own choosing, whatever, uh, whatever translation you'd like to use. Uh, there's a speaker there. You can press a button, and it, it speaks it to you so you can learn audibly and so forth. Uh, what a great way to hide the Word of God in your heart. And then I have a prayer app. It's called Mobile Knee, K-N-E-E-E, -E -E, Mobile Knee. And, again, you, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm talking with people after the service, and they, they share a need in their life. And if I promise I'm going to pray for you, by the time I get back to my office, I'm like, I'm an old guy, so I don't remember things real long. But if you have your phone there, you can pop it right in. Uh, again, very user-friendly. A lot of apps that are available for those kinds of things that are out there, but those are two that I've found uh, very helpful for me. So make 2019 a year in which uh, maybe God gets a greater, greater hold on your heart because that's always a challenge, at least I find it is for me. And uh, if it is for you, maybe these things will help you. Well, as we get ready to uh, dive into our, our series today, let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, thank you for this uh, new year as we look forward to it. Um, we probably have a wide array of thoughts um, represented here. Some of us are really excited. We have a, a brand new um, maybe business venture in mind that, that's going to launch later in the year. We're so excited about that. Um, maybe we plan have plans to go to school later in the year, and that's really exciting. Maybe, uh, maybe we have a couple that's uh, looking forward to marriage, or maybe a baby is on the way. Or, um, and then th there are those who don't have those kinds of thoughts. They're weighed down with burdens and concerns that they've uh, accompanied them from 2018 into 2019. And frankly, they're scared. Um, they don't have the sort of anticipation of a new business or a new baby or a new marriage. There's, they're wondering if they're going to be homeless in nine months, the way things are going for them financially. They're wondering if their marriage is going to stick together. Um, they're wondering if, if they're going to ever be able to have a relationship with a son or a daughter again the way it once was. And so for all of us, Lord, whether the prospects are... Um, glorious or grim we know that you are the God who sees all knows all, cares about all uh, the God who is not only 
I'm way out there, transcendent. But the God who's right here, who's imminent, who uh, is so imminent that you sent your son to be one of us, to become like us so that he could die for us. And whether we're um, full of anticipation for this new year or terrified about this new year, come to us, minister to us, um, help us see not just the problem, but to see you, the one who sustains, the one who can change the problems, and the one who sustains us when those problems aren't changed, uh, the one who has a plan for us far beyond these three, um, three to four score years that we wander in this earth, who has an eternity yet to look forward to, to anticipate and to be with you forever. Um, you are the God we worship. You are the God we serve. You are the God we love. You are the God in which we put all of our hopes. Pray that you would minister to us this morning. Pray that our hearts would be open for you to speak to each one of us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would have room to move um, <clears throat> in our hearts and in our church and that uh, we'd be ready, willing, and able to say yes to anything you call us to. And I pray this morning as we talk about <clears throat> kind of venturing into, um, into the lives of people that maybe we feel uncomfortable with, maybe we don't like, maybe we don't like what they think, maybe we don't like that they don't like us, that we would be pliable and say, um, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last February, um, an evangelical Christian by the name of Russell Vaught was sitting in front of the United States Senate for his confirmation hearing uh, to be the deputy director of the Office of Management Budget. And uh, he had an interesting exchange with Senator Bernie Sanders. Take a look. That is in the piece that I referred to that you wrote for a publication called Resurgent. You wrote... Muslim, quote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned, end of quote. Do you believe, do you believe that that statement is Islamophobic? Absolutely not, Senator. I'm a Christian, and I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith. Uh, that post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. And Again, I apologize. I do, forgive me. I, we just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe that people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view? Again, Senator, I'm a Christian, and I wrote that piece well, what does that say? The statement of faith. We I understand that. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple of million. Are you suggesting that all of those people stand condemned? What about Jews? They stand condemned too. Senator, I'm a Christian. I, I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God 
and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that, that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. And do you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they've rejected Jesus Christ the Son and they stand condemned, do you think that's respectful of other religions? Senator, I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly with regard to the centrality of Jesus Christ and salvation. I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee um, is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. I will vote no. That's the kind of country that we increasingly are uh, living in. We're going to find more and more people who are not willing to be tolerant about the things that we believe as Bible-believing Christians. It's interesting. Um, there is an article in the United States Constitution, Article Number 6, that says this. You think about what you just saw. No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. That means that no one can be ruled in or ruled out based on a religious position. Uh, the Atlantic, which is hardly a conservative or Christian-friendly magazine, even they said in the wake of that that Sanders flirted with the boundary of this rule. I would say he went beyond flirting and vaulted over the boundary of that rule. But it's, this, is the tr this is the direction that things are going, and these are the kinds of reasons that Christians increasingly find themselves um, where maybe once we were in disagreement with other people, now the disagreements are becoming more and more intense. And the rift between different sides, especially when it comes to Christian faith, are getting wider and wider and wider. Now, the, the, the temptation is, therefore, as we talked about last week, is to kind of pull the shades and retreat and back into our holy huddles, into our Bible bubbles, and just hang out with people that are just like us. Because after all, do we want somebody telling us this is that we are not the kind of people that this country was uh, built to represent and uh, that, that this is uh, Islamophobic and hatred and so forth. <clears throat> It'd be just easier to hang with people that think like us and that affirm us and don't jar us. And that's a reason that I think increasingly Christians find, we find ourselves, at least some of us, maybe many of us, reluctant to cross the bridge from our huddle out into the culture, into the world, and yet we must. For it is to that world that Christ has sent us. The title of my message this morning is The X Factor in Agreeable Disagreement. And this is a brief uh, series on how to disagree with other people agreeably. And as I said last week, really the things that we're talking about here can, uh, can impact any kind of relationship where we disagree with people. So um, if, if you're married here this morning, you disagree with your spouse more than anybody else. And so there are things to learn for uh, your marriage here. Uh, if you work with people um, who are very different from you or go to school with people who are very different from you, there are things to learn from these messages that can apply there. 
but I, I'm driving down deeper to the, the root issue, and that is that we have been uh, dispatched by Jesus Christ to a world that he told us over and over would not be, be all that receptive to us. They wouldn't willingly embrace us and the things that we believe, and yet we are sent to this world. Jesus said to his disciples in John 20, 21, and that was not only the 12 disciples there or 11 that day, but all disciples who would come after them and would say, I'm, I'm following Jesus. As the Father has sent me into your world, so I am sending you into your world. And so it becomes not a matter of what's comfortable and what's not comfortable. It becomes rather about what's obedient and what's disobedient. And so I want to take you this morning to look at a um, passage in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus speaks. I never did finish the title. The title is The X Factor in, Agreeing, in Agreeable Disagreement. Now, The X Factor is not just a, a television talent show. The X Factor is a, a variable in any given situation that may be the key to the, the most important key to a successful impact, a successful outcome. So, for example, <clears throat> the X factor in returning the Washington Redskins to actually being a contending uh, team in the NFL is somebody comes up with enough money to buy the team from Dan Snyder. <laughs> That's the X factor, at least one of them. Uh, the X Factor, Toyota, uh, Toyota Prius, a uh, very efficient uh, car, uh, back in 2012 was uh, uh, selling like 235,000 units. Uh, they're down to about 108,000 units last year. Um, it might because, be because they're not all that attractive, but more likely the X Factor in that particular outcome is because gasoline has been relatively cheap for these last five years. So you, you follow me? The X Factor. What is the X factor in agreeably disagreeing? Listen to Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 43. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus often began teachings by saying, you have heard it said. And there's no law in the Old Testament that says, hate your, hate your enemies. No law. It says, love your neighbors. But when Jesus would start out saying, you have heard it said, what he was doing was trying to correct the teaching of the rabbis, the misteaching of the rabbis, who would take an Old Testament law and say, here's the interpretation of it. Here's what it means. And so Jesus is trying to correct those skewed ideas. So you have heard it say, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In other words, not just a kind of a passive uh, regard, kind regard for those people, but get active. Pray for the people who have harmed you or threatened to harm you. Uh, pray for the people who oppose you. Pray for the people who've taken away your property and taken away your stuff. Be active about it. Represent your love by going to bat for them. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true, true, true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. We call that common grace, 
God gives nice things to people who are, are even rebels against him. And he says we should as well. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect, i.e., you are to love your enemies. Now, if you've grown up in the church like I have, and if you heard this passage read, you've read it, and you've heard it preached, and I've heard it preached many times growing up in the church that I grew up in, it kind of becomes a, a background noise. But if you stop and think about for a minute that small list in your life of people that you can't stand, and you might be simply because they can't stand you, the people that when you spot them in a department store that you duck and hide and give, go behind a, uh, an, another rack of clothes so they don't see you, you think about actually actively reaching out to them and loving them and embracing them, that's not background noise anymore. If you take someone who has it in for you, and I, my guess is that most of us have a very small enemies list, but you think of those people and think um, about doing something like taking a meal to them, about going to um, giving them a loan when they're in financial need or maybe an outright gift. When you think about um, uh, they lost a child and then you you go and say, I, I want to stay here with you for a week and just help you out. I mean, that's crazy. When you re recount to yourself all of the ways in which they have harmed you over the years and the things that they have said about you, that's crazy. And Jesus says, of course it's crazy because it's calling you to act just like your heavenly Father does. If you like the people that like you, that's, that's nothing. Everybody does that. If you care about the people who care about you, that's a big deal. Anybody does. That's a natural instinct. I'll take care of you if you take care of me. I'll help you if you help me. I'll love you if you love me. But loving those who hate you, different story. Love your enemies. And I wonder if you'd write down the name of the list. And, and uh, I, I, my guess is that you don't have to come, work very hard to come up with that list. If you would write those names down on your bulletin, would you be able to say, I love him or her? Now let me back up just a little bit. Because there's something that's not readily apparent in this text that I think Jesus was also getting at. I don't see how he wouldn't be. And Jesus was not just saying, those people on that very short list, you're to, you're to treat this way. But you should treat anyone that doesn't even rise to the threshold of your enemies list. So the boss that fired you you're convinced without cause. So the spouse that cheated on you 
or the girl who spread all kinds of lies about you, or the guy that borrowed $10,000 from you and never paid it back. What about them? Love those people. Again, isn't it it instinctive when we've been deeply wronged, deeply hurt, deeply offended, it's, it's so easy to to do life apart from those people. Uh, I mean, I don't have to, I don't have to uh, write up their wrongdoings to me in the newspaper and have everybody say, yeah, they're a horrible person. I just, I just do life away from them. It's not what Jesus is saying. Anybody can do that. In fact, maybe some of the Maybe some of the people on our enemies list or even in the lower level list are believers. And we don't have the luxury of just cutting ourselves off from them. Maybe rebuilding a relationship with them would be good practice for the more nitty-gritty anti-Christian world that Jesus has sent us to. Now, here's the thing. The word love is a relationship word. I don't care whether you use it as a noun or a verb. It has to do with relationships. My guess is that all of us at one time or another have even either said or heard someone say, I love everybody. I love everybody. So you have a conflict with someone and, and you say, well, I hope we can always get along. Oh, we'll be fine. I, I, I love everybody. There are seven and a half going on eight billion people in the world. Do you love them? Nah, heck no. You can't. You don't know them. You might have a positive regard for them. So let's say you get off a plane at tarmac in another country and you see a customs agent. You've never met him before, but... You don't have any animosity toward him or her. But not having animosity toward someone is, is quite different than loving them. Love is a, a relationship word. And here's where that takes us. We can't hide out. If we are to love people, that means actually connecting with them that means actually knowing them that means actually eating with them actually talking with them it will not do for us to listen to jesus say love your enemies and everybody else that you come up contact with and say we can hide from the world because love is a relationship word gotta have a relationship in order to Love someone. Again, the Father sent Jesus across this bridge to planet Earth, and Jesus says, now I send you across this bridge. And yet some of us will not go out into that world. Why is that? So for the rest of the time, I want to talk about our X factors. Love your enemies is Jesus' X factor. If you want to know how to agreeably disagree with your world, the X factor is love. But our X factors interfere with love. These are the things that are obstacles and impediments to us actually loving the very people that 
Jesus sent us to. I have two categories here. Last week I said I'm going to talk about shackles and sins. And the first category is a shackle. Some would disagree with me. I think it's a shackle. The second one is a sin. Shackle is our fears. Our fears. What is it that keeps us from these people that God's sending us to? Our fears. And I have a whole variety of them. I have about seven listed here. The first one is our a fear of embarrassment or being disliked. About six weeks ago, I pulled a piece out of the newspaper. Anybody else uh, dismayed these days with the newspapers that are put out? I mean, they're just a... I, I used to be the highlight of my day to read through the newspaper, and now I get almost all my news online. I can read the headings and just a couple spot points and get the gist of it without reading a lot. And there's just a lot of junk in the newspaper but I'm still hooked on the advice columns I love to read every day I read Dear Abby um, whether I read anything else in the paper or not and in this particular letter that was written a woman describes herself as a Christian and she's in relationship with a guy that she hopes to marry someday and uh, but she says I'm a Christian with um, a Uh, She says, I'm a feminist and I'm a Christian with a deep commitment to the LGBTQ community uh, because I have a lot of friends, a lot of family members who are part of that community. But her um, boyfriend's mother is a a, a Christian as well, but of a different stripe than her. And she is um, clashing. These two women are clashing, especially over the uh, the gay, uh, uh, gay issue. And so this woman describes her mother and uh, mother-in-law to be this way: she's very conservative and opinionated, and her viewpoints are outdated. Now it was interesting over Christmas uh, holidays, our uh, one of the times our family was together, we had had this discussion about the word opinionated. Do you ever think about it? The only people that are opinionated are other people. We have opinions. But we're not opinionated. Those people out there, they're very opinionated. And the, the implication of the word is that these people are boneheads. My opinions are wise, informed opinions. Their opinions are just, they're out there. So she's very conservative and opinionated, and her viewpoints are outdated. Now, I'm an old guy. But one of the things I don't want to be described as is outdated. That's why I bought these sneakers. <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I listen to podcasts and not just read the newspaper. I, 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 and it's just deeply, deeply um, bothersome to me to be considered outdated. But those kinds of comments... They not only have a a lot of impact, but they convey a lot of vitriol. Your opinion's outdated. She goes on to say that uh, this woman has denounced the women's movement, scoffed at the idea that men and women are treated equally in this day and age. She says, I try my best to make good points, but conversation ended with her telling me I need to pray because my beliefs aren't consistent with my faith. This has alarmed and offended me, uh, mainly because her boyfriend stayed silent during all this conversation. He's, uh, not a, he's a no-show. 
Now she's worried about our future. She said, if we have children one day, I would never want them to be exposed to such hatred and ignorance. Now we've gone from outdated ideas to uh, if you have a different idea than I do, it's hatred. Bernie Sanders, it's hatred. And you're stupid too. You, you're old-fashioned, you hate people, and you're stupid. Now that's the kind of recipe that nobody wants to eat. No wonder we are hiding on the other side of that bridge. We don't want to be... We don't want to be told that we're haters. We don't want to be told that we're old-fashioned. We don't want to be told that we're ignorant, stupid. So we're afraid of being embarrassed or disliked or defamed like this. We're afraid of conflict, second fear. We're afraid of conflict. There are some of us, um, uh, well, I'm going to just do that. That's poll. How many of us, like, just hate, hate conflict? Would you join me in raising your hands? Because I'm one of you. Yeah, look at that. <clears throat> we need the rest of you to help us cross that bridge a little bit. But we're afraid of conflict. We don't like it in our marriages. We don't like it in our families. Uh, we don't like it at work. We don't like it at school. And if you are like me and like that, we, we sometimes make very bad and even ungodly decisions because we're so afraid of conflict. That's one of the things that my wife and I have been working on the last number of years. We're, we are both adverse to conflict, and that has, create, that, that has not been healthy for our marriage because conflict in a marriage, if you love each other, you can use those conflicts to grow your marriage. But if you run from them, you remain stagnant. And so we're afraid of conflict with other people that are going to think differently from us. <clears throat> back, in the, uh, back in 2014, in the wake of that, after the, um, the killing of uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, by white police officer and all the, uh, the subsequent pro protests and a higher profile of police, white police uh, shootings of black men, um, there was an African-American pastor that I know of but don't know personally that tweeted out a number of things. And, and you know, my, my world has all along been so Caucasian, uh, and I don't, I don't, I'm not able to think through an African-American lens living in America. My um, sister, years ago, probably 20 years ago, was engaged to an African-American man, and uh, during their dating years, I learned a lot about, through her, about what it was like now to kind of step into uh, that world and see through that lens. And so this African-American uh, pastor tweeted out a number of things that I thought, well, that seems kind of one-sided, but I, I thought, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't live that experience. And so I reached out to him and I said, would you, um, I, I'd like to get together with you. And I said, I'd just like to hear your take on, on all that's happening in the culture. And that's all it was. I, I simply wanted to hear from him. I didn't intend to debate him or anything. I wanted to hear from him. And I never heard from him. And it was interesting because I, um, it wasn't like he didn't get my uh, communication because I was actually working with somebody else in his church about on another issue. And so uh, I, I know that he got the communique. 
But I thought later, you know, I was a little disappointed. He didn't reach out to me. I thought I I would have probably been just like him. I wonder if he's afraid of conflict too. And it's easy to tweet, you know. We can tweet things. We don't have to talk to people face to face. It's easy to do that. But I'm not sure I want to sit down with somebody that might disagree with me. So there's that. We're afraid of conflict. We might be afraid of minority status. And what I mean by that is if you are a Democrat... Would you be willing, if invited, to go to a Republican rally or vice versa? If you are a Republican, would you be willing to go to a Democratic rally where Bernie Sanders is the keynote speaker? Uh, Probably not. Because, you know, what if people find out that I'm I'm, I'm of a different persuasion and and that I'm in the minority here? And, you know, when when you're around people, let's say you are with uh, three non-Christians, And you're talking about something that impinges on your Christian faith. And you're discussing your beliefs, and they're coming back at you. And while they're coming back at you, somebody else can be planning their next retort. I mean, when when it's three against one, you're probably going to lose the debate. Just based on the fact that you don't have time to intellectually gather your thoughts and recover and make a credible comeback. You're probably going to lose the debate. So... I'm not really sure we like being in a minority status. That's another fear. Another fear would be misperception. I'm afraid that people will read something into what I do or say or what I don't do, what I don't say. And so if your gay neighbor does invite you over for dinner, you say, I don't don't think I better do that because if I go to dinner with them, it might look like I'm endorsing homosexual relationships. Really? Really? It's one thing to go to a wedding. You're, you are, in essence, doing that. But go to dinner. I mean, would Jesus take that approach? What did we see last week in the text? Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors. Do you think he is endorsing that they're fleecing their people? He's hanging out with prostitutes. Do you think he's endorsing that they should uh, sell their bodies for, uh, for money? Of course not. But we worry about misperception based on what we do or don't do. If we go, somebody invites you out for drinks at the bar. Well, if I'm seen at a bar, will that convey this? I don't want people to have misperceptions. We're afraid of Christian judgment. If I hang around with people of questionable character, will Christians conclude that I'm this or that or something else? Again, what did Jesus do? That happened. The religious folks did judge him but he still took the risk. We're afraid that we might lose the disagreement. I I think that that is of greater concern than maybe many of us would even realize. I don't want to look. There's a thought that if I lose a debate that I'm misrepresenting God. Listen, brothers and sisters, God is able to handle his world. And he's able to handle it whether you win or lose the debate. The most stupendous loss that ever occurred on planet Earth was when Jesus, the Holy Son of God, came to Earth, lived a perfect life, and then was put to death for a crime he didn't commit. And yet in the end, he won, and so did we. You see, the secret to winning is not always winning. 
And the last fear I think that we have is the jeopard, my faith being jeopardized. What if I mingle more and more with the world and I hear more and more things from the wor- world? Is my faith going to be shipwrecked? This is uh, an instinct that we often have when our children go off to college, and I think it's, I, I, I think it's misguided, and here's why. Sometimes our children don't have real faith and it needs to be exposed. That, that, I understand that that is a very sobering statement, but I believe it's true far too often. Our children don't have an authentic faith. It's simply that they've grown up and done the same things that we've done as parents. They don't have an authentic faith and we're terrified that the veneer is gonna be peeled off when they go to college. Listen, if your son or daughter has authentic faith, it's not them that's gonna hold on to it, it's God. Let me give you a verse that, especially for parents, that'd be good for us to hold on to. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 21. Second Corinthians one. And really, I mean, if, if if we or someone else, some of you know my story, I, I had a fake faith up until age 20, 25. If it's fake, it's not saving. And far better for the veneer to be ripped off and exposed and, made, and the, the truth be made known to everyone than for the uh, delusion to take and escort someone right into the bowels of hell. 2 Corinthians 1.21, it is God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. This, the, the, the authenticity and the security of faith is a work of God. I, I need to, I'm gonna buzz through this here. Okay, so those are the fears that, uh, and that they might be simply the tip of the iceberg. A lot of fears that can keep us from crossing the bridge to the unbelieving world. The sin that is rooted, uh, some of the, uh, uh, the fears are rooted in this, But the sin that I'm concerned about in my life and maybe yours is pride. And here's what I mean. Pride is, we've talked about this many times over the years, pride is at the root of all sin. And so there's pride in my desire for comfort. And what I mean is I don't want to get into controversy with people. It will be unsettling and disturbing and uncomfortable. I, I just, I don't want to go there. I want to look good. I want to look smart in front of my opponents. If I'm going to get into a, a disagreement about what God says and who God is, I, 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 I want to look good, and I'm afraid I won't look good. I'm afraid I won't be able to win that debate. I want to be successful. All of those things are rooted in pride. Let me close with this. Do you remember Jesus said, I have not come to bring what? I have not come to be so, bring something but to bring something else. I have not come to bring anybody? Peace. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Now that should tip us off that a, an agreeable world where everything is going smooth and, and we get along with everybody and we all think the same way just ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. But we can be agreeable. 
when we disagree with people. And in order to do that, we're going to disagree with the people who need Jesus, especially. In order to do that, we have to cross the bridge from where we are to where they are. And Jesus told us that we must. Therefore, we cannot remain on this side of the bridge out of fear, pride, or anything else that might come into play. Next week, we're going to talk about some specifics about how we can go about taking first steps uh, on the other side of the bridge. But I, I, I want to close our time this morning leading us, leading me in a prayer of repentance for having, having our comfort and, and desire for an undisturbed life too often keeping us on the wrong side of the bridge, on the safe side of the bridge. And so would you pray with me as we close? Father God, we, um, I confess, and I assume there's some of my brothers and sisters here as well, confess that we have wanted to have for far too long an unruffled life. We have arrayed around us friends and colleagues and classmates and teammates that are, think the way we do. So we don't have to worry about agreeing um, or disagreeing in an agreeable fashion. It's become easy for us. And yet the mark that is to be made by the followers of Jesus because of that retreat is not being made. And just as Jesus was torn away from his home and his glory and the adulation and the affirmation of the angels and his fathers to come, Father, to come to this place to be despised and rejected by men, so we too have been sent on that same mission, even willing to be despised, to be rejected, to be uncomfortable, to look like a failure, to look like we're outdated, to uh, have our ideas appear to be hateful, narrow-minded, and to present all that in love to the needy world. God, help us to remember where you found us once upon a time and for how many of us were brought to saving faith because some Christian was willing to cross that bridge to us. And give us the boldness and courage, Lord, in 2019 to step forward in faith. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.